Hey out there, rock and rollers. Welcome to episode number 147 of the Ugly American Werewolf in London Rock Podcast. Brought to you by me, your host, Mac B. the Wolf. And I will be joined, as always, by my partner in crime from the East Coast of the United States, Gary Action Jackson. And longtime listeners of the show know that we are into classic rock, hard rock, progressive rock, heavy metal, early MTV, and more. And we do a lot of album reviews, live concert reviews, artist interviews, focused on the stuff that we loved from the time we grew up as children of the MTV generation until today. And another part of our show is, as I used to live in London, we would explore bands who maybe did well on one side of the pond, but didn't do well on the other. It's a phenomenon. You figure, oh, well, everyone's English speaking. If they do well in America, they'll do well in England and vice versa. And it doesn't always work that way. Now, today we're doing a band, an English band, of course, because we do so many bands from the UK, who did achieve success on both sides of the pond and in the Far East, but maybe not always at the same time. That band is, yes, progressive rock kings that came out of the 60s, were huge in the 70s, could fill stadiums in America with their progressive noodlings. But then in the 80s, things changed. The record industry didn't want the long 12, 20-minute songs. They wanted concise pop, album-oriented kind of stuff. And so, yes, evolved with some lineup changes, the departure of Steve Howe and Jeff Downs after the drama album, the return of John Anderson as the lead singer, and the addition of South African Trevor Rabin gave, yes, the chance to start over in the 80s with a fresh new sound. Actually, Trevor was joining up with Alan White, Chris Squire, and Tony Kay of, yes, they were going to call it Cinema. But, of course, the record company had to intervene, get John Anderson involved, and then turn it into a Yes record. But 90125 in 1983 is the biggest seller that they've ever had, more than $3 million in the U.S. alone. And that's on the back of Owner of a Lonely Heart, which hit number one in America, not just on the rock tracks, but on the Billboard Top 100, whereas in the U.K., it kind of fizzled out at 28. And so this did not sell huge in the U.K. I don't know if it was because they didn't want to think of yes as a new wave act they're kind of that old 70s progressive act maybe they just wanted younger bands who knows but it did very very well in the u.s not nearly as well in the uk and it was our introduction to yes as mtv viewers seeing owner of a lonely heart was huge we're going to talk about the video we're going to talk about all the songs and all the videos but thanks to that song they got a lot of songs from this record on american rock radio and they're still being played today Before we get into it, just a little bit of business. Of course, we always mention we are proud members of the Pantheon Podcast Network, a network of about 100 different shows. You can check out PantheonPodcast.com or follow them at Pantheon Pods to learn more about our brothers and sisters with other great music shows. And of course, we have to thank our fantastic sponsor, RareVinyl.com. Guys, they're based in the UK, so you know they're going to have a lot of Yes albums. They've got over a quarter million items in stock. Go to RareVinyl.com, use the code UGLY, and you save yourself 10%. So if you want that rare Yes first edition, or maybe an import, maybe a picture disc, or it doesn't have to be Yes, it could be anything in the, they've got in their catalog, go there, find something you love, use the code UGLY, save 10%. They ship all around the world, so it doesn't matter where you are. Go to RareVinyl.com, use the code UGLY. Save 10%. Now back to Yes, as 90125 was their biggest selling album, it's kind of the one that has sustained them all these years. But not everyone loves it. The real progressive fans probably saw it as a sellout or just a very different band than what they had gotten used to. A lot of people who found them at this point 
loved this version of Yes, but then when they went back to their proggier roots, like, eh, whoever, yeah, I'm not sure I'm really into them anymore. And the current incarnation led by Steve Howe does not do songs from this album anymore. We're going to talk about why and all that here as we dive into 90125 by Yes as it turns 40, right here on The Wolf. This album, I would say it's important. It was pivotal to the band. It was kind of important in my development. I I didn't have it necessarily until I was older, but that's because it was played so damn much on the radio. Mm -hmm. I wonder too, like with the Genesis record, Mm -hmm. this was the first time we ever heard of Yes. Correct. I mean, I I loved Owner of a Lonely Heart when it was on MTV every 15 minutes. (laughs) But I wonder, were the people who were big Yes fans at that time, maybe 10, 15 years older than us, saying, what is this crap? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. And there's a lot to get to. There's a lot to unpack with all Mm -hmm. of this. So uh, that's why I wanted to like, (laughs) let's go ahead and, and get down into this here because you're right as 10 year olds in 1983 we didn't really know anything about roundabout or tales from topographic oceans and we didn't know who rick wakeman was and that he was this great keyboard player who might also be a little temperamental he'd been in and out of the band a little bit you know we didn't know who steve howe was even though we liked asia Mm -hmm. uh we didn't know who he was we didn't know john anderson had left and come back so uh, there's a lot going on there but you're right the owner of a lonely heart video was kind of big time and Mm -hmm. it was so huge in the u.s look it only hit number 28 in the uk so that's you know hey that's top 40 that's not bad especially for a prog band but in the u.s it's like number one billboard number one mainstream rock it's like number eight overall for the year that's a really big deal in the u.s especially for a band like yes who you know maybe had one platinum album or a couple Mm. most mostly like a gold selling band they do well on tour but they didn't sell a ton of records and then this one goes triple platinum in the u.s and probably about five to six million around the world right and especially for a band who hit the last couple of records they had were not super exciting they were kind of right in the middle and even drama john anderson left you had trevor horn who i had never listened to that record before really and i went back with extra time that we had mm-hmm. and listened to that and i said well that's interesting because horn is trying to sound a lot like john anderson on oh this. yes were you trying to like fool people into thinking it was the same deal and then of course everybody was just mad at each other by this point in time yes and some of them are still mad at each other Uh, (laughs) sometimes that feeling to this day goes away yeah exactly so all right what we do is we okay so we we talk a little bit about our connection to this album how we came to the band and to this record and we've done a little bit like that it's it's mtv had no understanding of them pre lonely owner of a lonely heart we see the owner of a lonely heart video but before that, obviously, Yes had a very story career. They started in the 60s, and they picked up members along the way, switched them out. It's really a musician's band. You have to have great chops to be in Yes. And that's why they have these titans like Steve Howe and Bill Bruford's in, but then Alan White replaces him, and you've got Rick Wakeman coming in and out. Patrick Mraz was on the Relayer album. Tony Kay was kind of the founding member, and he's back on this one, and we'll talk about all of that fun stuff, but... Yeah, the band itself, as you mentioned, was coming off the Drama album in 1980, and John Anderson had left, as had Rick Wakeman, after they had 
two, it was Tormato. Uh, it was going for the one in Tormato in what, 77, 78. They kind of had what I would call the most classic, yes, lineup in that Alan White was on the drums. Once he joined on, I believe it was Tales of Topographic Oceans, he never left until the day he died. Mm-hmm. Chris Squire, who was the only permanent member of the band from inception to the day he died. John Anderson, who is the voice of Yes, no doubt about that. Steve Howe, who's, I would say, the best guitarist they had. Plus, he's the longest tenured. And then Rick Wakeman, who's, uh, I mean, he's my favorite keyboard player. No offense to Jeff Downs or anybody else. Rick Wakeman is is kind of something special. So they, they, they'd had a couple albums like that. Wakeman steps out. They do Relayer with Patrick Moraz. He steps back in. They do Going for the One and Tormato. Mm-hmm. which we talked about with our friend Kevin Mulrine from the Yes Music Podcast because he wrote an incredible book about it. <laughs> and then I guess not only did Rick leave, which you kind of knew was going to happen because he was a solo artist. He'd done solo albums and tours and things like that. So it's not shocking that he left, but when John Anderson, the voice leaves, okay, now that's a problem. So now they need to replace kind of the most important commercial part of the band. They know the Buggles, because in 1979, they had this hit with Video Killed the Radio Star, which of course would be the first song ever played, first video ever played on MTV just a couple years later. But I, I guess they were in the studio, same studios with them. They meet them, it's like, God, we need a keyboard player and a songwriter, and here we go. We've got a keyboard player, a very, very good keyboard player, and a singer, and they do write songs. So let's just pull them in. And you're right, Trevor Horn was doing his best John Anderson impersonation. First of all, John mm. Anderson is a falsetto. He 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 kind of conjures his voice to sound like that. Trevor kind of had to do the same thing. Now, to me, in retrospect, over time, the drama album to me is very, very good. Yes, it's kind of awesome. It's not quite right because it's not John Anderson, but I think it is aged incredibly well. And with hardcore Yes fans, it has as well. However... Anytime you change the singer, that's going to screw some things up for fans and screw some things up commercially. And I think they did a good tour. I think they played like six nights at Madison Square Garden or something like that. Mm. But I also think that it was very hard physically on Trevor Horn to try to sing like that every night. And while Jeff kind of he kind of slid right in there and did a very good job. It's not that Trevor didn't do a good job. I just think it was not a great fit and it was very physically difficult for him. Yeah, I can imagine that because I know there are other guys who have tried to do that. And you're right. If you're trying to push yourself into a into a range that's not comfortable, you're going to beat yourself up. And I'm sure there was all kinds of backlash at that time too because, you know, it's not the same group. And are you just trying to do an impression? It's not a it's not a new thing. You're just trying to fit in. Right, right. So they do the album. It sounds okay. They do the tour. I think that does a lot better. And then at the end, I think they decide to break up. I, I think there really is no yes from like 1981 to 1983 or something like that. And so all the members kind of go their separate way. Steve Howe famously starts Asia, which we've spoken about on the show because all things come back to Asia. We love that first Asia album in 1982. Mm-hmm. Heat of the Moment was their big song. And it had the big riff Mm-mm-mm-mm. stuff that Steve doesn't even really like to play. You know, he likes mm-hmm. to do the fiddly bits, but they kind of convinced him, Steve, this is what we need for this song. And they made him do it like two in the morning. So he's like, all right, fine, I'll just do it. <laughs> 
In the meantime, everybody's doing something else. John Anderson had worked with Vangelis before when he's out working on different stuff. Chris Squire, uh, founder and bass player, and Alan White famously had a jam with Jimmy Page during this time, which they mm-hmm. were thinking about calling X- XYZ, like X-Yes and X-Zeppelin, mm-hmm. uh, that never really got anywhere. But I think they did some some fiddling around with it. I'd love to hear some sessions if anyone's yeah. got any of that stuff. Anything with Jimmy Page interests me. But then they decided to do, they decided to work on a, a new band, and it was Squire and White. I think they eventually drafted Tony Kay. And then there's this guy from South Africa that Geffen and different labels were trying to figure out what to do with. His name was Trevor Rabin. He'd been in a band down there called Rabbit, who I guess was successful in South Africa, but I'd never heard of them. And so they're, they're trying to find a place for him to go. Well, at first, he actually was jamming with the guys in Asia for a bit, trying to figure out if that was a good fit. Well, you know how Steve Howe feels about having other guitar players <laughs> in his band, in his midst. He's like, no, no, I, I've got this. You know, There's probably also some personality clashes between the English ve- vegetarian and the good-looking South African, right, uh, who's, who's out to party. I mean, Trevor Rabin does not look like the rest of Yes. You know? <laughs> he, first of all, he's tan. Uh, secondly, yeah, he doesn't have to hide behind some Roger Dean cover art. You know, he could actually be on the cover. He's a, he's a good looking guy. So it doesn't work out with yes. Eventually he goes, I'm sorry. It doesn't work out with Asia. Eventually he goes to find those three ex yes members and they start to jam and they call it cinema. They're not going to call it. Mm. Yes, because it is different. It doesn't have John Anderson. Rabin is writing all these songs. The guitar is different from really anything they'd ever had in Yes before, and it's going to be something new for the 80s. And I think that the record company's like, okay, this guy Trevor Rabin can be a star. Let's find him a vehicle. Let's find him somewhere to go with this. So they start jamming. They're putting together demos for cinema, and then eventually John Anderson comes into the fold. And then suddenly it's like, okay, well, now we've got, it's basically yes with a new guitar player. We've got to kind of call this yes. Not to mention Anderson comes in and puts his spin and adds Mm -hmm. some things to some of these songs so he can sing them so that they're more yes or whatever. But I got to believe that you like that. I mean, I know how you like to have a different voice. You know, sometimes you hear a different voice. It's not always the same singer. And so I'm assuming that hearing Rabbit on this on some songs is the main singer and sometimes where they trade off. I got a feeling you dig that. Yeah, I was I was making notes here. Like, I don't think they never really had anybody that was the second strong singer. Like they always had they had strong harmonies in the band. But I don't remember. And I can't tell you, I know every single yes track. But was there anybody that ever sang lead besides Anderson before this? See, did Squire, Squire may have had some breaks. I know everyone talks about how great Squire's voice is, but I'm with you. Mm-hmm. It's more about the harmony than it right. is about ever singing lead. Of course, he did a solo album. Everyone in Yes has done a solo album. He did Fish Out of Water famously in the 70s that a lot of people love and they like his voice on it. How would do a little harmony with them on some songs, no doubt. But Trevor Rabin can sing lead and did and did yeah. well. But to answer your question, yes, I do like that. Because it, it 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 has a little bit of back and forth, and you can give the singer a break, and you can also trade leads too, exactly. which is nice on different refrains, and they do that pretty well on this record. They do, they do, and it makes for some nice vocals, some harmonies, uh, and a little bit different sound. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and and I I like it very much, you know. Now the really interesting part is that it was produced by Yes and 
Trevor Horn. Mm-hmm. So the guy who was your lead singer in 1980 and did that tour and about broke his vocal cords and his brain trying to sound like John Anderson. Okay, now he's not doing that anymore. But now he's in the studio with you, telling you what to do, helping to shape these songs. And now he gets to sit back and be the boss. That's a strange dynamic. I, I don't know if I've ever heard of a situation like that in my life. You're right. That that would that could be that could go very well because he knew the guys, he knew the situation, he knew the sound they were going for. But you're right. Now you've got somebody who was a band member and now he's in charge of the record. I don't know. I, I've, I've not seen that before. No, that, that does not happen often, you know? Yeah. Did that create some tensions? And the thing is, yes, already always had tensions anyway, because it's not like there's one or two guys that are in charge. Everyone is such a good musician. It is very collaborative. So there's a lot of pushing and pulling and fighting for bits. And, oh, let's make this 16 bars. No, let's squeeze it down to eight kind of thing. But so there's always that going on anyway. And now you've got another one, someone who used to be in the band, but it's like, now you have to kind of listen to me because I'm the producer. Just throwing another monkey in the wrench. Well, and, and speaking of monkeys in the wrench, what I never knew about this is basically this whole record was a Trevor Rabin deal. Yeah. Like he wrote every single song on here. So now you've got a new guy who's going to come in, sing some of the leads and write every single song or at least part of it. Mm-hmm. I don't know. That's a, that's a different deal too. Although they weren't together. So this was kind of like, I mean, did, and then we'll go into the, the cover art too, but were they really kind of thinking this was, even though it was called, yes, this was a new deal. Yeah, no, that's the thing. It was supposed to be called cinema mm-hmm. all the time. Trevor, Rabin, and I call this the, the tale of two Trevors, this album, because it's Trevor Rabin and Trevor Horn working together to make something that was very commercially successful. And like you said at the beginning, maybe not traditional yes. Maybe traditional yes fans are like, eh, this is not the same thing. But like Carl Palmer had said, the record company suddenly in is like, no more of that long, drawn out <laughs> prog stuff. You've got to get it down to four minutes. Now, They've still got longer songs on here. Hearts is seven and a half minutes. Changes is over six. You know, they have a several, a couple over five. So they, they still have some of those prog elements. And when you've got all that talent in that band, you've got to give people places to shine kind of throughout. But you're right. It's, it's you're taking this album-oriented band that could do these long, drawn-out things to make you more of a pop band. And it wasn't going to be yes until the last second. Basically. So you're right. No, it's, it is a different band. It's called cinema, different singer. And Trevor Rabin came with a lot of these songs. Now, Chris Squire and John Anderson and uh, Tony Kay and, and Alan White helped them shape them. And there's some different writing credits kind of throughout this, but the one who is on every single one is Trevor Rabin. Mm-hmm. And I wonder too, if they were at what point in time did it go from cinema to yes, because I, I got to imagine that the, the, Record company people were saying, you know, this would be a lot easier sell if it had a brand name on there that people already knew. Well, that's right. Yeah. And I'm I'm sure it happened a little late in the game. But yeah. But I mean, I think something that we have to talk about is, you know, we love Roger Dean and we love all the incredible artwork that he has done over the years for Yes and other bands. And here's this kind of cheesy cover that somebody made you know, on like an Apple IIe. <laughs> and I, I don't even think I'm making that up. You know, I, I think uh, I think that's a fact. I can't, I don't have the, the note on the name of the dude who did it in front of me here. 
sleeve design. Here we go. Was Gary Muat, M-O-U-A-T. Don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. But yeah. He, he, and he did Big Generator too, right? Did Big Generator. Yeah. And they did 9021 Live, which kind of had, you know, a, a kind of an offshoot of it. Mm-hmm. Something I learned that I did not know doing research for this, about 20 years ago, Trevor Rabin re- released a, an album called 90124. Mm. which was a lot of his demos, not only from this album before they yesed them up, but then some others that he did, you know, for yes, stuff that would end up on big generator stuff that might've ended up on solo albums. And if you can get that on CD or LP, that's a bit of a, of a rare find. And it used kind of the similar artwork as well, but you know why they called it 90125. Yes. Not at the beginning. But I figured it out later on, and then that kind of leads me to the cover art also. So you have this, they have the Y or the, you know, the yes deal in, I guess that was the cinema logo that they kind of reworked. Mm -hmm. And then 90125 is just the catalog number. Right, right. Like drama was 90124. So like the next number in the catalog would be this one and that's why they called it that yeah didn't use the famous roger dean less yes logo didn't use him on the artwork at all so it is a departure it was supposed to be something different and it certainly is from that standpoint but this would prove to be incredibly successful album for them and the one that rick wakeman of all people said this is the album that has allowed yes to continue to this day which oh, is absolutely. surprising, you know, well, well it's, it's true. No, it's, it's absolutely yeah. true, but Wakeman wasn't on it and Steve wasn't on it. And Steve does his best to ignore it. <laughs> his very best. Although I did see a cool clip from the rock and roll hall of fame, uh, induction where they played owner of a lonely heart. And by that time, Chris Squire had was, had passed. I think it was right. 2017. And so how is playing uh, the, the bass, bass. Mm-hmm. and it's, it actually, it works pretty well because you pay tribute to Squire, but then at the same time, you don't have to compete with Raven. So it actually worked out for everyone. No, and he, he sounded good. He did a very good yeah. job on it. Of course, roundabout, they had Getty come in and play bass on it. And yeah, that was awesome. Steve's like, you know, Trevor, you just stand in the back. Don't play anything. This is my song. He didn't say that, but <laughs> no, he might've said that he might before they went on. You stay could've. in the back. You don't stay in the back. Face yes. the corner. Yeah. And and of course, hey, they're like, hey, what are you guys going to do? And John Anderson's is like, we're going to do a tour. And Steve's like, nope, nope. We didn't <laughs> discuss that. And I'm like, oh, Steve, you're... we'll get into that stuff later. But Hi, this is Jeff Downs. You're listening to the Ugly American Werewolf. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. 
Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. Okay, so we start off first track, coming out strong, man. Owner of a lonely heart. That first riff, <clears throat> so it's funny. It's it's not unlike the start of Heat of the Moment, <laughs> and so you wonder he was jamming with him. I know Heat of the Moment was like the last song that they ever did, but that came out in '82. He mm-hmm. certainly would have heard it. They had the same management. They still do. Did he hear some of that when they were working on that? I don't know. Maybe <laughs> it. Yeah, it, it does sound similar, and it, I think those two riffs were the ones that kind of turned me on to just, you know, the guitar as a 10 year old saying, well, that sounds really cool. Mm-hmm. And you kind of are the coolest person in the band. If you're up front with the uh, playing that, but I was thinking about that too. And it, as iconic as that riff is that drum intro or the percussion intro, whatever it is, is pretty cool. Also that, that just that, you know, you know what you're getting ready for. Yeah, and so it's this is probably kind of one of the first things that it sounds like sampling to me. Uh, okay, and, and they played with a lot of stuff. Like you, you hear, and like looking overall, doing all the research, how everyone played with the Fairlight at various points. Squire, White, Rabin, you know, everybody's kind of playing with different tools here to get some of these different sounds. So this is yes coming into the '80s. Of course, Rick Wakeman was big into that, and he invented the Byrotron, so you mm-hmm. can kind of incorporate all these things. But now the technology come forward, and they're starting to play with some of this stuff, and so that's a part of this song as well. But the video was huge here in America. In the UK, yeah, it only gets up to 28, but it goes to number one in America on several charts, you know, and, and the video had a lot to do with it, right? With the dude walking in black and white, like walking over the Thames in London, a couple of men in black kind of grab him, take him into a 
government building for processing and he starts to have all these visions of animals jumping on him and stuff like that and he starts freaking out gets into like a i don't know what would you call that like the furnace in the basement has to beat up some dude to get out of there climbs to the top and then the five of them are suits in suits just kind of surrounding him to the point that he has to go jump off of the building then turn into a bird of prey and then it's in color Right. And then and then you see him walking again. This time he turns around and goes back the other way. I didn't really understand it back then, but it made for killer visuals, a, a killer video. Of course, the song is awesome. Well, I knew exactly what they were talking about in that video. <laughs> no, I, I had no clue. But it was just, it was just cool because it was first of all it was shot in London, so that was it was always interesting. Cool. Yeah, always cool to see. Oh, I know what it was too. It was that that opening shot down the river where you mm-hmm. see all the bridges yeah that now i've seen a million times but that that looked awesome to me back then yeah the guy who was you know what's going on here he's in like this dystopian you know everybody's going to work at the same time mm-hmm. you know, daily drug and all of a sudden the two guys grab him and the adventure begins but i always thought it was weird too that it was this was 1980 what was it 83 mm-hmm. but the dude had a very severe haircut he had like a crew cut which you really didn't see that much it was mostly the you know patrick bateman big hair for the guys well that's right and he just he just looked like a he just looked like a guy who was in trouble and and he went through this thing he beat the dude up and he got out at the end and then he was right back to where he started from. So was it a dream? Was it not a dream? What was going on? Was he just sick of, was he, was he wanting something else to happen in his boring life? Right. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, no. And and that's exactly what it was. Now it was released ahead of the album. The album was like November 11th or something like that. I'm sure I'm going to get that wrong of 1983 no that's actually right and then the song (laughs) was released october 24th so it's the one that kind of you pre-release it you get people Mm -hmm. excited about it a couple weeks in advance our song which is on the second side of the album was the b-side so there's a couple interesting things about the video first of all there is a second video that's done on like a sound stage with maybe a green screen behind them and it's like they're in the desert. So yeah, they're, they're standing in a, a kind of an open house, a, a three-walled house with the fourth wall kind of, you know, the screen or whatever. And they're standing on sand. Of course, John Anderson is standing on a big mound of sand because mm. he's a foot shorter than everybody else. <laughs> and it is terrible. It is a horrible video. It's like they really don't know what to do. And, and mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's like we talked about Genesis recently on their 1983 Part of the reason Phil Collins became such a huge star was not only because of his singing and songwriting, but it's also because he was an actor. Like he went to drama school. He knew how to play a little role in a four minute video and that kind of thing. These guys didn't really know what to do, right? And Squires just camped out behind Alan White. Anderson's kind of swaying back and forth in kind of a tracksuit and some odd shoes. Trevor Rabin's looking more like a rock star. And you see Tony Kay in it. Now, in the other video, what happened was Tony K left the band for a minute. Like he had recorded mm. with them, and he's like, "That's it, I'm leaving." They brought in Eddie Jobson. I think he did a couple of video uh, of photo shoots. You can see him on the roof in the original video. He's one of the guys in the black suits. Mm-hmm. You can't see him real well. But then in this other video, and I assume this is why they made it, was because, oh, Tony wasn't around for it. Okay, well, let's make you know this other one that's not some kind of concept video. Let's just do like a weird performance you know, in a studio video. But it's terrible. And I hadn't, I never saw that growing up. I, I saw it years later. Either. But I'm like, this is bad. I mean, especially when you already had... 
this cool concept thing and it's shot in London and it's on rooftops and stuff. I, I didn't really get that, but I mean, I assume it was because of the lineup switchback. Listen, we've got to shoot another video for this. We only have $28. So everybody <laughs> needs to stand here and look cool. Yeah, and absolutely. no, not so much. I think, yeah, I think Anderson is wearing like some kind of sandals yeah, it's or something. Yeah, but, but maybe I, with socks too. It's, it's yeah. odd. <laughs> Very odd. There's a promo picture. I guess when the album came out and they're all standing, I don't know, in, in front of stairs or something. And Anderson has on the new balance with the Velcro ties to them or the Velcro straps. Very, don't do that. Very don't, nice. Don't do that. Yeah. yeah. Very classy. Dude. Can we get a stylist in here, please? Goodness gracious. But I'll tell you, so there's a longer form video, which I also had not seen until very recently. So in the video we saw on MTV, you see the guy walking in black and white, but you also see clips of the band, like in the studio, singing a little bit of it and playing a little bit of it. You see Squire and Rabin and Anderson all singing. There's another form of the video, and you can see this on YouTube, where it's just the band in the studio for like a couple of minutes or a minute and a half, right? They start the song. Mm. They're trading vocals and licks back and forth. And they get to a point, and then John Anderson is like in the field, and he turns into the eagle, the eagle that you see in the video. Mm Mm-hmm. And Raven turns into like the lizard, the lizard you see crawling on the guy in the video. Squire gets in the back of like a Mercedes or whatever. He turns into a snake, the snake you see around his neck in the video. So it's like you see the guys turning into these animals. Alan White turns into the black cat, the one that falls on his back. Mm. So it, it sets up the video. It explains it a little bit better. Like, oh, here, here's these guys. They turn into these animals. And then these are the animals that are haunting the dude, the protagonist, the actor in the video. And so they do that. And then, it, you know, John's flying around as the eagle. And then that cuts to the shot of going over the bridges over the Thames. Mm-hmm. And then they just show they don't do cutbacks to the band anymore. They just show this guy being taken into the government processing or whatever, having these animals freak him out in his mind so it, it kind of sets the story up a little bit better if you ask me yeah but the only problem is it's like seven and a half minutes long though right right so that was never going to be on tv but yeah I, I, you're right i hadn't seen that either i thought it was just a third video until the until they cut to him mm-hmm. in the field and then it goes into the it goes into the one that i knew yeah you're right i that it does add more context and it's kind of you know everybody has their own animal and they kind of they kind of touch on that a little bit at the end Right. For about a second. But yeah, that would have, I mean, I would have liked to see this back then. I know. I know. Well, Storm Thorgerson of Hypnosis fame did the video. The guy who did Big Log for Robert Plant. And he did a lot of other, and that was the thing. They were just doing album covers or whatever in the 70s. Now there's 80s. Okay. Now I get to direct some videos, right? So that one is classic to me. The song is fantastic. I mean, anytime it comes on the radio, I automatically turn it up. I never say, oh, I don't want to listen to this because it's still got some great stuff. It's still got some good Chris Squire bass in it. Uh, mm-hmm. It's got that good run. After they do the, yeah, you know, it's got that nice kind of guitar run in it that, that Alex Lifeson said he liked very much at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremony. The band is very tight. They play together. It's a classic Yes song. It's a shame that they don't really play it live anymore. Mm. And, and this one shows how, the to me, the video is always tied with the song forever because every even if when I hear it on the radio, I think of the video, especially the solo part, with the with the metal cutting and the saw cutting up some I don't know beam or something and mm-hmm. sparks are flying, it just it I always think of that scene when he plays the solo because it just it goes together forever in my head. And for me, it's when he jumps off the roof 
Uh, and then it's it's like the jam, right? Then you got the the great bass part by by Chris Squire. You've you've got the great singing by John Anderson, and it's like he didn't die. He turned into this bird of prey, you know. And now he's flying. Uh, he's free to go be who he is. And you're right; mm-hmm. it's kind of a dream sequence, but it's still cool. It's it's forever yeah. etched in my mind, no doubt about it. Great song, great yes song. We'll talk about why they don't play it later. But I mean, they they've never had a bigger song before since. Not not even really close. Not in the US. Now, in the UK it's different. But it did do well over the world, but it's like they sold 100,000 units in the UK. They sold 3 million in the US. <laughs> the US is 5 times as big as the UK, not 30 times as big. So that shows you how important it is to get that big single and have a big video in the early mm. 80s in the and, US. I mean, you front-loaded this thing, too. It's the first the first sounds you hear off of this record. They don't give you a break. They go right into it. Absolutely. Right. Okay. We got to move along here. If we don't, we'll never get past Owner of a Lonely Heart. <laughs> but okay. So the first one, honestly, it was written by Trevor Rabin, John Anderson, Chris, Chris Squire, and Trevor Horn. Trevor Horn got credit for changing up some lyrics. I read somewhere that it was he got 15% of it, so it's not 25%. I guess they didn't cut it equally. I don't know how they decide on, yo, you get 15%, not 25% or 10%. I don't know. But Trevor Horn does say, and he's been a fantastic producer over the years, done a lot of great pop and rock stuff. It's like, this is, this is one of his very best achievements as a producer. I got to believe that he's right. Mm, yeah. Interesting. Because usually it takes you one or two to get where you want to be as far as producing, you know, it kind of how you th- that switch from being the musician to being the producer. But yeah, he really nailed it on this one. No doubt. Now you go to the second track, Hold On, a Rabin, Anderson, and Squire write. But again, Rabin came with most of these and then they had to shape it a little bit. And Anderson mm-hmm. is pretty good at, at reworking some lyrics and telling a better story maybe than, than Trevor Rabin had on his own. They do sing together a little bit here. And this is, again, a difference between the U.S. and the U.K. This was not necessarily released as a single. However, because of the popularity of the album, it did get up to number 43 on mainstream rock in the U.S., hmm. whereas I don't think it got a whole lot of play in the U.K. Do they just not do, they just not do that? If it's not a single, they're not even going to put it on? Maybe. I, I'm not sure exactly what that... And, it's, of course, it's BBC. It's, it's state-run right so mm-hmm. you know there's there's rules and laws like we have all these other singles to play we can't just play some album cut or whatever you know, right. now that now there's a bunch of channels that you might be able to hear something like this on but back then yeah and and obviously it doesn't get huge wide play because it didn't get in the top 40 but, but this is it's slower versus the first one um mm-hmm. but it has like a big bright sound to it and i'm wondering is that trevor horn's production mm, maybe yeah yeah, it it is a little slower. It's got another. It's got a pretty good riff at the beginning, which kind of which hooks you in. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it it's you're right. It does have a bright sound, and I do like. Here's here's where we get into the first time you're going to hear the two different voices on this. Even though they're not, I mean, Anderson's voice is Anderson's voice. Like that's you can't ever mistake that. But I think Ravens goes along with his very well.
I agree. I think they complement each other well. Yeah. And even though it was not a single, it's been on compilations. And mm. they did make a video for it that, again, I never saw back in the day. It's a performance video. It's basically from them on that tour. Okay. And the stage was pretty big. Mm. Of course, Yes was a big name. They could play arenas and things like that. And then they, they threw in some other odd videos and clips, and they used some technology like uh you know a guy's drawing a square and then oh the square opens uh and out comes chris squire or out comes trevor <laughs> rabin or whatever you know and i guess it was rabin had hold on and moving on two different songs or uh, moving in i should say mm-hmm. and then they squished them together with the help of squire and then anderson reworked some of the lyrics it's kind of cool there's kind of an acapella middle except with some synth in there so it, it's uh, look they play this on the radio forever i didn't know it wasn't a single i kind of assumed that it was same thing with me yeah I, I i remember hearing this quite a bit when i get into the high school years but yeah it could have very easily been a single for me and then you can get that moving in i think that moving in song at least the demo of it was on trevor's 90124 album and I look i've already looked on rarevinyl.com mm-hmm. they don't have it at least not right now at the time of recording but use the code ugly when you find it and you save 10 percent they had it on Amazon and like the LP was 42 or $43, but the CD was like 60. So I guess that's the rarer of the two. Mm. It would interesting. be interesting to hear. Yeah. It would be interesting to hear how they started versus how they ended. You know, you're saying horn got 15%. You know, what did you do for that 15% to, to change it up? Yeah. It's just a you know, songwriting is a very interesting deal because, you know, you have this idea and, I think if you're if you're the original songwriter, you have to be okay with people saying, "Let's make this better." Like you could mm-hmm. you could take it one of two ways. You could either say, "No, don't touch my stuff," or, "Hey, I never thought of that. That's much better." Luckily, he did that because all of these songs, the first to me, one, two, three, four. Well, the, of the first five, four of them easily could have been singles. Oh yeah, no, I'd say the first six. five of them anyway yeah something like that yeah absolutely Uh, so i I always liked hold on and it's got you know it's anderson's lead trevor's in there singing too all right well let's move along okay uh, to the third single i'm sorry yeah it's the third single and it's the third song on the album it can happen now this is classic rock staple yeah absolutely man i don't know if it really hit in the uk again i don't know if the uk folks just didn't like owner of a lonely heart so they didn't want to hear the rest of them i don't know if they said no that's a prog band and we don't want them we're too into the new wave you know we went to human league and the spando ballets and the duran durans we don't want this rehashed old band i'm not sure but it, it it's very catchy there's a slowdown in the middle which is great, and some prominent Squire bass. And and Raven's playing is different from how. Mm. Generally, I feel like it's a harder, almost more of a metal thing. It's more of a hard rock thing on this album. But it does sound like he's trying to do some Steve Howe kind of stuff at the end of this track. Okay. To me. Interesting, yeah. I like the, I like the, uh, the sitar to start. That's a different... Just a different sound. You haven't heard that before on the record. Mm-hmm. Kind of differentiates this track. Yeah, the bass in the background is good because he, he does that. He he's underneath doing that. It's so cool. His bass is great. And I think that's that's the big thing that even if you've never never heard Yes before and you listen to this, you know, even though it's not super over the top prog like it was in the in, back in the day, you can tell that other things are going on. This is not just a straight ahead rock record. 
They've got you know, you've got the keyboards who were they fit it all together. No one's really fighting, but you, there's a lot of stuff going on there. The more that you listen. That's right. That's right. And it deserves a few listens. Absolutely. Yeah. And Chris Squire's bass is the authentic sound of yes. I mean, he's the only mm. one who was always there and he's special. There's no doubt about it. There, there are not a lot of bass players who play the way he did. It went to 51 on the top 100, but it went to number five on mainstream rock. So that's a top five hit on the rock stations. It was backed with live version of it can happen because it wasn't released until i think it was june of 84 okay or, or something like that so last of the three to be released hold on was starting to be played in america in november because you can just play whatever you want on certain stations but but this wasn't released until uh until the summer of 84 when i'm sure owner of the lonely heart was was also still doing fine. It was definitely still in rotation on MTV. That's a fact. But but I, I like this one. And of course, anytime somebody says it can happen in real life, I have to break into the chorus, right? <laughs> it can happen to you. It can happen to me. It's, you know, it's it's catchy. Now on this one, it's interesting because if you if you go to the the super deluxe version, I don't know what year they put that out. It could have been a twelve inch. Mm-hmm. Oh, you mean the record? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. When they, they re release the CD, the, they have the cinema version of that. I, I got it. Okay, all right. And you and and in listening to it, I can you can tell how because Anderson isn't on that. It's just Raven. You can mm-hmm. tell that even though Raven's voice is great, it's the Anderson has the classic. If you say yes, you think of uh, you think of uh, John Anderson, Anderson. and just how much better. Like Raven's voice isn't bad for a second lead. It's but Anderson is the is the lead vocalist, and it shows on this track. That's right. That's right. And it's Squire Anderson and Raven uh, on this track. A little over five and a half minutes long, so it's it's keeping some prog roots to it. Mm. But got played big time on American radio. Helped sell the record. That's for sure. The fourth song. Mm-hmm. changes yes. you've heard this song a Once thousand times yeah. but it wasn't i guess officially released as a single either but it got all the way up to number six on mainstream rock you know so now you've got two singles on the first side here and two songs that maybe they weren't released but they got real airplay in america and you know this one does have uh, Raven kind of mm-hmm. singing. Well, they both sing on here, right? <laughs> right, but he take he takes the first part of this. That's right, correct. And and the that xylophone at the beginning, and then it and then the drums catch up, and it kind of gets a little frantic there. And uh, yeah, I love this song. As if you-
Do you? You, you let, this is one of your favorites on the yeah. on the record. Yeah, correct. Probably number two on this one. Wow. Okay. Well, that's cool. Yeah. No, there's nothing wrong with it. And you know, I think it's one that he had, Rabin had, and then Anderson helped him change up the lyrics a little bit, make them a little bit more. Uh, I don't know, familiar to people or relatable. Uh, interesting. Alan White gets a co-write on here with with Trevor and John. And I guess he had it. It was a song he wrote after not getting a solo deal with Geffen. Okay. Uh, like, you know, he's like, okay, we're going to let you play with these Asia guys. See if you fit in here. No. He's like, no, I really want to do a solo thing. And they're like, no, we don't think you will need to be a solo artist. We need you in a band and do some stuff like Foreigner. Can you do some of that kind of stuff? I think it depressed him a little bit. So this is that's kind of where this song comes from. The two of them sing together. Mm-hmm. I, I think it makes it great. And all the time they were together from 83 through Talk in 94 and that tour, they always played this song live. Okay. Yeah, I can, I can imagine this was a... It's kind of a deeper cut, the, a crowd pleaser. And, and it's interesting because the uh, the solo is kind of understated, but it works. It's like, it's real short and it's it doesn't really go crazy, but it works in the context of the song. Now, I will swear to you, mm-hmm. you know the movie Real Genius, the Val Kilmer vehicle that kind of helped make him a star. Correct. So they go to the airfield to get into the plane to switch out the chips or whatever there's Mm. some music playing in the background while they do this you never hear the vocals i swear it's either part of changes or something that just ripped changes off directly it's not credited on the soundtrack anywhere so i'm probably totally wrong about that but the mm -mm -mm, mm -mm -mm, you could you can hear some of that stuff from the break in the song i don't know it's i always thought that that was true I think I'm wrong about that. I am man enough to admit it. But there's some kind of connection there, I feel like. And I don't know if anyone else knows anything about it or if I'm crazy for thinking that. Interesting. I mean, yeah, who knows? If it, if it's not the actual song, maybe the, the, whoever was doing the music was a fan and just said, well, this works, so let's just put something that sounds like that in there. And yeah, if you're not, not going to credit it, then it doesn't really matter. You can do whatever you want. Yeah, and of course, Trevor Rabin has gone on to do, I don't know, is it 50 movie scores? Is it 60 movie scores? I mean, he's he's done, you know, remember the Titans, Armageddon, so many, and a lot that, you know, that you would know, gone in 60 seconds. National Treasure, big, big time composer. He is unpoor from all of that. <laughs> There's no doubt about it, you know, so somebody is... is you know, probably caught on to, hey, whatever Trevor's laying down there, it might be good for a movie. Hmm. But Trevor is actually, as we're recording this, he's releasing his first solo album with singing on it in, I don't know how long it's been, decades, certainly many, many years, called Rio. And I believe it's out now. Okay. So let's check it out then. Big Mistakes is the first single. No, no, it's not out quite yet. It's set for release as we're recording this. It's set for release October 6th. So 40 years after he releases 90125 with Yes and kind of makes it onto the scene, he's going to release his first uh, solo album of vocal material, first one in 34 years. Well, now I'm going to have to check that out. Exactly. Because, I mean, like you said, if he if he has this giant career as a as a composer, as a soundtrack person... Why would you want to do this again? Because you think these songs are decent. So let's yeah. check it out. And he probably got some inspiration when he was in Anderson, Rabin, and Wakeman. Famously, John Anderson is not in Yes anymore. It's basically because Steve Howe doesn't want to deal with his nonsense. He's like, <laughs> I'm old enough now. 
I don't need Napoleon coming around, bossing everybody around. I'm in control of this. We got a great singer. We're going to do our own thing. Anderson's like, look, I'm a founding member of Yes. I have a right to go out and tour. Wakeman is a big part of its history. Rabin was too. So they got an ejection that said they could tour as Yes. I don't know if it's Yes featuring or Yes with Anderson, Rabin, and Wakeman. And they did a couple of tours. They, they've done some live stuff. I think they're broken up now. But maybe he's got, you know, you got something, hey, being back with my buddies, not just sitting in the studio and composing and stuff. It's fun to get out there and play rock and roll again. And maybe, you know, he's that's where Rio could, took some inspiration from. I don't know. But I'm like you. I kind of want to check that out now. Also, is he the only South African who's a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Uh, that's an excellent question. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. It's got to be close. Yeah. There's not a lot of them. That's for sure. But that's side one. Okay, you've got Owner of a Lonely Heart, biggest hit they've ever had, huge on MTV. Hold on, rock radio stable, you know, got to about 40, was it 43 or something like that. It can happen. Big single, ran up the charts in the US, five on mainstream rock, and then changes, six on mainstream rock. So the whole first half of the album played incessantly in America. Now in the UK, not so much. Again, I mm. think at the time, they're just like, yes is not what we're looking for. We're looking for younger, we're looking for new wave. We're looking for something else. But hey, more fault you, dude, because this is a great Yes album. I know it's not what you, it's not Tales from Topographic Oceans, but it's it's good. It's Maybe it's different, but that doesn't mean it's bad. So then it's the case of did their early fame hurt them in England over yep. there? Because people said, I don't, I don't want to accept something new. I want classic Yes or nothing. Maybe, maybe. Of course, you know, the classic stuff, all that stuff from the 70s was washed away at this point. You had to be new. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, Genesis 1983 album did better in America than it did in the UK, although I think it did better than, than this did in the UK. I don't think they liked this in the UK. So they're, this is, they're missing out. Hi, this is Gary Kemp. And this is Guy Pratt. And you're listening to The Ugly American Werewolf in London podcast. <laughs> But you start the second side with the song Cinema. Mm. It is an instrumental. It is the shortest song on the record, just over two minutes. And I guess it was pared down from like a 20-minute <laughs> kind of typical <laughs> yes jam and then pared down, whittled down to just over two minutes. It's, uh, it's proggy. It's fast-paced. Alan is really driving the beat, and everyone is jamming. Plus, you can hear a lot of technology being used kind of throughout this thing. Yeah, I had, I had drums were galloping at the start, and the bass is just sliding all over the place underneath. It's great. Classic, yes. Yeah. yeah. I, 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 I mean, I, I don't know if I want to sit through 20 minutes on an album, but I, I could have definitely done for a little longer than, what was it, two minutes and change. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, it's, it's kind of a rockin' classical piece, almost, mm-hmm. you know. I, I actually really like it. It did win a Grammy in 1985 for Best Instrumental Rock Song. No, right? Uh, which is, hey, feather in their cap or whatever. And it's uh, it, the writing credit goes to everybody except John because it was it was made when they were still cinema, before mm. John was there, you know, and it doesn't have vocals on it. It's just an instrumental. So those four, Tony Kay, Chris Squire, Trevor Rabin, Alan White, they get the writing credit for it. So they all get a Grammy, I guess, but none for you, John. <laughs> Sorry about that. But it does kind of make you wonder, what if John had just stayed out of it? What if they had just been cinema? What would the album been like? What would the tour have been like? I got to admit, I'm interested in seeing that. I think you're going to, you can find out a little bit later on that, on that uh, deluxe version. Cause there are a couple of songs that they finished Mm-hmm. That they that, that were not included, and they're more. I don't think I don't think Anderson sings on either one of them. No, yeah, I think you're talking about uh, "It's Over" and "Make It Easy." Correct. We're, I'll talk about those because I that is on the version that I have here. Okay, but then yeah, I think exploring nine hundred one two four from Trevor Rabin might give a little insight into yeah. it as well. But we move on to the second song on the second side, or the sixth overall, and that's "Leave It." Mm-hmm. which was the second video and second single done. And this time they employed Godly and Cream, just like they employed Godly and Cream to make the Asia videos. Mm-hmm. And they used their video technology. Now, I'll admit, I didn't see this video back in the day either. And while this went to 24 on the Hot 100 and number three in the U.S., it only went to 56 in the U.K. So again, this is showing you the power of, a video in the U.S. this time, which was not nearly as strong in the U.K., and the power of you have a huge single. Well, then you get to have two, three, four. If you can get to number one, you're going to have more. Mm-hmm. It wasn't number one in the U.K., but it was in the U.S. But did you see the video? Mm-hmm. I mean, just... I, I for this okay, show, yeah, yes, but I, I don't remember that either. I mean, it's it was maybe state of the art back then with right. you know standing upside down and then the, their heads turn independently mm-hmm. and. Yeah, that was, uh, I'm sure at the time it was state of the art, but now it looks just a little bit silly. True. Did you tell me, somebody was telling me they saw them live and they started with this song, like cold, nothing. They just came out. There was no instrumentation. They just started with this acapella and whoever it was was blown away because like you haven't warmed up at all there was no no room to hide on this thing well it wasn't me okay i i've only seen them twice uh and no it, it i didn't see that but maybe it was on that tour or a subsequent tour i'm not sure that's that's what i'm thinking it had to be either this one or big generator yeah. to have to have them play that and play it first no, no, it starts acapella and then they use their mm-hmm. voices like that throughout uh as instruments yeah. And it's got some kind of classic one down, one to go, another yeah. town, and one more show. It, it is very dense. We, we talk about a lot of prog music being dense, and all of this is popular prog. There's a lot going on. Mm-hmm. There's a lot to listen to in this song. I can feel no sense of measure, no illusions as we take refuge in young man's pleasure. Yeah, and I like when yeah when he's talking about you know they go, you know they they have the 
main part of it, they say, oh, leave it. And then you hear, you know, uh, Squire, boom, 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 Yeah, he's holding down. Yeah, that's, I love that part. He's so good. He was so good. He's so talented. I just don't think he took very good care of himself. But it's it's good to hear the trading lead. Like, Trevor goes first, and then John mm. does secondly. But you're right. The video, it's like they're all in black suits. They're all standing next to each other. And then, yes, their heads come off and rotate <laughs> together. And then... <laughs> Their bodies all flip around together. They, they fold them up like lawn chairs. It's Yeah, I'm sure in 84, this is like, oh, <laughs> look at what they can do. Now it's kind of like, that was yeah. But the computer. Exactly. <laughs> you know, Apple IIe, you know. <laughs> it's got a 128K chip. Oh, my God, you're kidding me. It's what, just what, less than 3,000 pounds. What'll be next? 256K? Oh, my God. <laughs> But I've always liked the song because it does have that acapella bit in it. It does have the trading lead vocals, the vocal harmonies. It's good, yes. It's perfect on this album. And mm. yeah, I mean, number three, hot you know, album rock tracks, that's another big hit for them. Yeah, and it's nice too that it that they it's on side two because we're gonna get into the rest of the side too, but it's a nice it's it's a nice change up after the uh, the instrumental also. Yeah, and and this is a little bit of a change in the album. It's like after this, because like the first six songs are pretty commercial. Five of the six were played mm-hmm. on the radio all the time. Another is a Grammy award winning instrumental. Okay, now we get into some songs that maybe they're a little different. All right, the third song or seventh overall, our song which was the B-side of Open Love of the Lonely Heart. So people heard it, right? It's funny. It's like they're singing about Toledo, I guess, in it at some point, because at some point they played a gig there and it was like 120 degrees or something like that. So mm-hmm. they're talking about it. It kind of sounds like an 80s soundtrack song to me or like a credit song a little bit to me. It, it fits have, on the album, but it's a little cheesy to me. I have montage scene. Yep. Where they're, they're you know, we're going to make it. We're going to do it together. We're going to get this whipped into shape and show the other guys what we could do. Yeah, that's exactly what it sounds like. It's very 80s cheese. It's like one crazy summer, we're going to repair this boat and get it ready for the regatta. (laughs) And that's it. You know, that's what the song is. Our song, you know, it did actually get to number 32 on mainstream rock. So that's, I mean, it just shows you how unstoppable it's a B side Mm -hmm. and how unstoppable this was in the U S and why it sold 3 million here and a hundred thousand in the UK. I mean, I don't love it. I wouldn't skip it. It's fine on the album, Mm -hmm. but it's not, it's not something I would seek out. It, it's funny how the rest of the, the the first part of the record it still sound like you can still listen to it today and this sounds pretty good you get here and you say oh this this was kind of stuck in a certain period of time the Maybe. sounds of this yeah it's, it's very early 80s to me yeah no doubt about it but look they're experimenting with this new technology and then the technology changes again right and then it changes again so if it sounds a certain way then it can very much date a song and i think that's kind of where we are right. in this one but it, but at, okay, so now that you say that, then it's actually kind of cool because you were you were always wanting whatever new I want to 
play with that and incorporate it into our sound instead of just saying, no, we're, we only do things one way and that's it. Well, that's right. And, and yes, has always been experimental cutting edge. Great musicianship is the hallmark of yes. Not everybody could join. Yes. So, uh, you know, Hey, good for them for, for using the new stuff, the fair lights and the, the program and the stuff and everything else. I don't love this one, but Hey, <laughs> no, no one asked me. By the way, did you know that it was Deepak Kazanchi who did the sitar at the beginning of It Can Happen? Absolutely. I yeah, he's, no he's, he's one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and Graham Prescott did the violin on Leave It. Mm. Just so you know, just a little, well, little something thank you for, for you. Gentlemen, thank you for your contribution. Yes, exactly. Very nice. All right, so moving along mm-hmm. to City mm-hmm. of Love. Correct. Now, this one is a weird one on the album as far as i'm concerned it stands out because it has more of a little bit industrial feel to it certainly at first yeah it's Mm -hmm. i don't really care for this one much (laughs) apparently it was he was going to do a session for foreigner because they're they're still trying to fit in trevor rabin somewhere it's like the guy's got talent as a songwriter as a singer as a guitar player let's put him in somewhere he goes to a foreigner session in harlem but he goes to the wrong address and suddenly he's a white guy in harlem and he's like oh this this isn't good. Is he holding his guitar? You know, I was like, uh, he looks like a mark to me, right? You know? <laughs> so he kind of like, it's a little rough. It's a little scary. He's like, and then at night, like everybody comes out of the sewers and they become thugs and it could get scary. It can get dark real quick, you know, uh, in Harlem, I guess is what he was thinking. And so that's what it's kind of about. I can imagine being from South Africa. That would be interesting for Trevor. An interesting experience mm. for him. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. When he recalled with a song. Yes. Of course, the beginning has a little piece of uh, Pines of Rome by our favorite Italian composer, Ordorino Respighi. I know you mm-hmm. love his work. I mean, just it, classic. Just just good stuff. Yeah. What the hell? Uh, <laughs> but, uh, although it kind You've of- heard of him, right? Yeah, no, no, I haven't. <laughs> I'm just a rock dude. I've never heard of this guy. But it kind of just shows you how the breadth of, of all that they know and can play and do in the band. But it, it's it's ominous for this record. This is kind of a pop record. And you take something that was like bright, like hold on, and then contrast it with this. It's different. And honestly, I would probably take Make It Easy or It's Over over this. I, huh. I would I would take okay. that over personally for me i just think it's a little dark and and would take one of the others and and switch them and switch this one out but that's that's just me but you know what if you're gonna put your worst uh song as the second to last song on the second side then they did it right (laughs) as far as i'm concerned Yeah, I, I don't. I, there's parts of it that I don't that I don't hate. the The solo is actually pretty cool. It doesn't sound like anything else he plays on it. It's a little bit greasy. Mm-hmm. The chorus is that's kind of cheesy. Yes, but um, yes, it is. Yeah, and and honestly, like I, I've got notes in here where like it just sounds like it should be on at three o'clock in the morning on Cinemax. <laughs> Up next, 
Andrew Stevens and Tanya Roberts star <laughs> in City of Love. And I said that to my wife, and she's like, yeah, whatever. I'm like, I bet if I go through every single movie they, the two of them ever made, there's something like this in there. City of Desire, City of Something, it's in there. Probably. Give Shannon Tweed movie, yeah. Any, any one of the fine people who made 80s and 90s late night cinematic classics. Yes. Or Skinamax. Skinamax. For the young teenage boys. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, they ch- it used to be HBO yeah. app. They just changed it to Max. I'm like, mm-hmm. that's the dumbest thing in the whole world. Home <laughs> box office where you can watch movies. Great brand. Been around mm-hmm. 45 years. Now let's get rid of that and call it Max. I mean, it could be uh, that could be a tampon, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it could be anything. Max could be a dog app. You know, I mean, it's dumb. People are dumb. <laughs> anyway, all right. So we wrap up the record with hearts. Mm-hmm. And I, my note is it's the last song for a reason. <laughs> the chorus of the refrain is fine, but the syncopated drum synth thing, I, I don't love that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's the longest song on the album. I mean, it, Owner of the Lonely Hearts, four and a half minutes. This is seven and a half minutes. It does have some proggy changes, so maybe that's kind of an ode to some of their older stuff, but I, I don't really like this one that much. Yeah, I, I don't really either. There's the chorus of two hearts are better than one. I have boo on that. Yeah, exactly. yeah, that's just yeah, that's just a week. We know. Yeah, thank you. But yeah, I think this one is, the, the, it was like they were trying to do classic yes, prog, but it has to sound like it's in the 80s. So let's just mash those two things together. Yeah, and I just, I don't think it worked. I, I don't think it's great. Every, it, it is the only song that everyone got a writing credit on, which I guess is cool because it's such a jam and everybody added something and, you know, Tony comes in and writes the piano part and mm-hmm. Chris does this and whatever. So that's cool. City of Love was just Raven and Anderson. Our song was everyone but Tony K. Leave it was Squire, Raven, and Horn. So Trevor Horn did get uh, another writing credit. And of course, it's on the single. First two singles, Trevor mm-hmm. gets his, his writing credit, you know. Uh, <laughs> but no Anderson on on Leave It. Um, so kind of interesting there. You know, yeah, it's, it, it, it's, I'd be curious to see exactly how all that broke down as far as who got what percentage. But the bottom line is Trevor Rabin was the force, was the creative force behind this record. And then the next two songs, Make It Easy and It's Over. Uh, Make It Easy actually got on Yes Years in 1991. It's a cinema song, mm-hmm. uh, as is It's Over. I like these better. They're both close to six minutes long. I like these better. Make It Easy actually has some very Steve Howe-like playing on there. It's very early 80s. It's very Yes. It, it should have been on the record versus the last two songs. I would have totally taken this. Maybe it is a little bit more like Foreigner that they're trying to push Rabin towards. Mm. It, I don't know. It It takes me back to a time like i hear this and boom i'm already i'm automatically back in like 83 84 watching mtv it it just sounds like that
you were waiting for the little HBO guide that would come every month to tell you what the new stuff was going to be. Absolutely. Be on. Yeah, that was awesome. Yeah, I have, uh, on Make It Easy, I have, this does sound 80s cheese, and to me, it sounds like a Raven song that they, they're trying to make sound like yes. Yeah. Like they're, you're trying to fit it into into the mold. So I would be interested to see what this song sounded like at the beginning, too. I got to get a hold of that demo that 90124 just to hear it just to hear it i know yeah, yeah. We, we probably get it on youtube but uh but if you get the physical copy it's a little bit of a collector's item there mm-hmm. but no yeah I, you're probably right and that's why they left it off the record plus there's no john anderson vocal on it it's pure trevor a uh, raven they maybe could have changed that but honestly i, I think it's kind of cool the way it is cheesy yes but also perfect in a way i i don't know i i like it it's over is a little more harder rock Mm-hmm. as far as the, the guitar does but there's good melodic interplay between the keyboard and the guitar on that one I, again this kind of shows me cinema might have been a good thing on its own wouldn't yeah, have been could, the same but would right, have been good right but that would have been a huge that would have been a huge hill to climb to try and market this thing i think because it's like it's yet yeah, well it's not really yes but they have got yes guys in it trust me just listen and you're gonna love it yeah. but where you know you have yes on there you have a built-in, oh, I've heard of that before. I'll give this a listen. But, but see, you're right. It yeah. would be interesting to hear that because I don't think that that cinema record never came out, right? Correct. So I would, I'd be interested to hear those sessions too. Yeah, you know, and look, Trevor Rabin is marketable as a rock star. Mm-hmm. Look, at the, look at when they're playing live. The other guys are wearing like white jumpsuits, you know, some new wave stuff. I saw a video of them playing live and Alan had like a gold headband on and maybe some eye makeup on. I'm like, what are you wearing, dude? What is, what is wrong with you? You know, and Squire had one of his white, you know, like long, almost robe, like, you know, duster kind of things on. Mm -hmm. But Rabin like wears black leather and, you know, like he looks like a rock star. Plus he has color in his skin, whereas none of the English guys (laughs) have any of that, you know? So you could push him out as like, this guy is a rock star and, and we could, market him as such and he would have been great on mtv with those guys Mm -hmm. all around him but i get it you bring anderson in it changes the dynamic it makes it yes yes is marketable obviously you Mm -hmm. can't say they did the wrong thing because it's the most successful album they ever did but i don't know i i would have an owner of a lonely heart would have been much different so it wouldn't Mm -hmm. be the one that we love but I, I gotta say, I would love to have seen the alternative universe where there was cinema and we got those songs in a different way. Yeah, just to see the progression too. Like, where did you, you know, where they ended? Where did you start off from? And what would, what could or would have that, what that have sounded like? Would Trevor Horde have even produced it, or would it have been somebody totally different? Right. Who knows? Yeah. Who, who knows? But it was a huge success. I gotta say, overall, I really liked the album. Mm-hmm. I can listen to it a lot. And if you sub out the last two with it's over and make it easy, I could listen to it almost every day. I mean, it's it, to me and it, I understand it kind of takes me back to a time, but I didn't own this album until much later in life because I didn't have to, because they played it on the radio so damn much. Even the songs that weren't singles, they played and played and played. So I personally really like this one. And I think it's one of those ones you you get it synonymous with owner of a lonely heart in your head, and then you go through and you say, well, now wait a minute, they had other. I forgot about all these other songs that they have on there that make this thing a pretty solid front to back. Yeah, no doubt. And of course, once you have these big hits, then you can do a big tour. And over the course of a year, February eighty four to February eighty five, they played one hundred and ten dates around the world. Apparently, they had to cancel some because. 
Trevor was fooling around in a pool with a woman, and she bumped into him and punctured his spleen. Um, okay. And he had to have surgery to remove it. Also, another fun little fact is they were supposed to tour with Berlin as their opening act during the North American leg, but there was a contract dispute, so they dropped them. So instead, they opened their show with a couple of Bugs Bunny cartoons. Oh, right. Right. <laughs> Imagine you show up for that show. Okay, we get, what is this? Am I in the right place? Exactly. Interesting that they did headline Rock and Rio, which we always think of like Iron Maiden and hard mm-hmm. rock heavy metal bands in Rock and Rio, but they did that in 1985. In fact, they played Buenos Aires uh, in Argentina, uh, and it was the first time an English band had played Argentina since the whole Falkland Islands War. Yes, okay. And I guess there were, uh, you know, they were surrounded by military because there were death threats on these English bastards, these colonizing bastards who were coming down to to make even more money off of the Argentinian people. But didn't know that. That's, I remember seeing that on the news, but I I didn't really know where the Falkland Islands (laughs) were. (laughs) Didn't really know where Argentina was at the time. And it's like the English and it's whatever. It's not our problem. Yeah, and they were and they were tiny out in the middle of nowhere. So yeah, I remember hearing that and just saying, I, I don't, I don't get any of this. Okay, but hugely successful for them. And then of course they did nine hundred two one live, and they did the solos, mm-hmm. and it bought them a lot of time before they did Big Generator, which came out in nineteen eighty seven. Of course, they ran it back. They're like, okay, we're going to let Rabin write all these songs. We're going to have Trevor Horn produce. Now he's had a lot of success. Now he can lord over them more. And they didn't really recapture the magic of Mm. 90125. Love Will Find a Way, I guess, was the big single off of it. I like it, but I don't know if I like it ironically or if I... <laughs> I mean, there is a lot of stuff in it. You know, they're, they're squishing a lot of things in there, and mm-hmm. Squire even throws in a little harmonica in it. I'm like, it's got a great melody. It's got nice choruses. It kind of would fit in a little bit with this album, but it's Big Generator was not very good, if you ask me. And then, of course, Steve Howe is creating this separate faction of Yes at the same time, mm-hmm. uh, which would become Anderson, Bruford, Wakeman, and How, because now all of a sudden John Anderson's like, well, I'm the singer, but I don't sing on all the songs. So now yeah. what do I do? And you can see in the video, he's like got a guitar, but he's kind of strumming it. It's not like he's a lead guitar player or whatever. <laughs> so he's like, yeah, I'm happy to go back to being Yes, where I'm I'm lead singer again, right? Mm-hmm. But it's like, well, but you don't have Chris Squire, so it's not Yes. So you have to call it Anderson, Bruford, Wakeman, and How, which eventually led to them, to the Union record, which was the putting together of the two camps. And that lineup is the lineup they got into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Because not everyone who's ever been in Yes is a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. It was basically the 90125 through Talk lineup, plus Wakeman, plus Steve Howe, plus Bill Bruford. Okay. Or... The union lineup, if you will. Mm. And the thing is, the union lineup, the, the union album was not good because it was basically two different albums <laughs> by two different bands that got squished together. And basically they put John on, on all the tracks. But the tour was cool because it was done in the round. And for the most part, all the members of the band talk about how cool it was to jam together and to do all these things, except for Steve Howe. Steve Howe did not love it. And when they would do stuff from 90125 or whatever, he would just leave the stage. He wouldn't come in and put in like textures or whatever. He's like, I didn't play on this song, so I'm leaving, which is, I think, what he probably wanted Trevor Rabin to do on all the songs he played on. But Trevor's Mm -hmm. not doing that, you know. (laughs) 
could still sing and add textures. I don't think Steve liked that at all. And when Steve came back in like 1995, after the talk thing was not well received, and I don't think they even toured on it. They reformed kind of the classic. Yes, Tony Kay left, Rick Wakeman came back, and now, okay, back to the classic lineup. And then Steve never really left again. But eventually, once there was an opportunity to oust John Anderson, he took it. And now he is firmly in control of Yes. John mm-hmm. Anderson will never be back, which to me is sad because I mean, like he had a health issue. He had to sit out that tour, but they never welcomed him back because they didn't want to deal with him, I guess. Uh, and if they can just pay a replacement, a replacement fee, and then, mm-hmm. the, you know, you get your full shares. And now that Chris Squire has gone, Alan White's gone. There's no one really to challenge Steve anymore. And so he can lead the songwriting. He's producing the albums now and they will not do. I mean, I saw him. I saw them with Oliver Wakeman and Benoit David, that must have been 12 years ago, something like that. They did play Owner of a Lonely Heart. They didn't do it great because I don't think Steve likes the song, obviously, because he didn't play on it. But now that we're in this kind of what I would call the final incarnation of Yes with Billy Sherwood on the bass, Jay Shellen on the drums, Jeff Downs in the keyboard. We love you, Jeff. And John Davidson, John Davidson, who was a who's a good friend of uh, of late Foo Fighters drummer Taylor Hawkins. Apparently, they went to high school together. Or something like right. that and taylor was the one who was always telling chris squire look you ever need a singer i got a guy for you huh. okay so, so that's pretty cool and look john davidson does a very nice job he seems like a very nice man when you hear him on interviews and stuff like that he was on kevin mulrine's yes music podcast obviously a talent and you're filling a role and you have to sing people are expecting you to sing these classic songs the right way mm-hmm. but he's also gotten to do new stuff with them and i think that's good for him and the band overall but it's a shame that this is their biggest album ever and sold millions of copies people around the world love it but they won't touch it because steve howe doesn't like it because he wasn't on it it is too bad that that you run into this situation where people that have been in bands for a million years like they just can't they just can't stand each other they just can't work together anymore and it is too bad because like you said this this record was huge and there i think there still is an audience for it but they'll never play it correctly I right guess. no you're you're right you're right it, it, it's sad to not have john anderson i understand why Tre- by why trevor rabin isn't in the band i get that steve you don't want him in mm-hmm. you never wanted him in fine I, I guess it's just the personality clashes and the domineering of anderson he's like i don't need that in my life anymore mm. he's the only steve howe's the only classic member left i mean i know jeff was on the drama album mm-hmm. and at this point he may be the longest consecutively tenured keyboardist in the history of yes maybe not longest overall mm. i think that's probably still rick wakeman but as far as consecutively having that spot yeah it's it's definitely him i hate this phrase but it is what it is <laughs> and they're as we record this they've just gotten into america and they are doing their tour right now the classic tales of yes tour and just like when i saw them last year at royal albert hall roger dean kind of comes in and introduces the band mm-hmm. and they when i saw them they had kind of a video tribute to alan white which i'm going to assume they're kind of still doing but yeah it starts september 21st in bethlehem pennsylvania and ends november 4th in riverside california they are not really coming very close to me they're doing some shows in florida they're playing orlando Mm -hmm. clearwater pompano beach i think cleveland or st louis or chicago are the closest they're coming to me here 
in the Midwest, so I won't uh, I won't be seeing them on this tour. They, they they were supposed to do Relayer for like the last four years or something like mm. that. It keeps getting pushed back and pushed back, <laughs> and they might not even do it anymore. But classic tales of yes means all right. They've done so many tours where they had focused on playing certain albums in their entirety. Sometimes they they played like three albums in their entirety, which is kind of crazy if you think about it, or at least pieces of it. That's nuts. Now they're kind of doing, you know what? We're going to do classic songs. They've got the new songs from the new album out. So that's what they're doing. And they can still make money as yes. So mm-hmm. Godspeed. And anybody who sees them, please let us know how they how they are. Ah, 90125 by Yes. Brings back fond memories for a couple of kids of the MTV generation, like me and Jackson. Again, we had no knowledge of Yes's prog domination of the 70s. No clue about that. We're 10 years old, we flip on MTV, and we see the owner of a Lonely Heart video. And it's a great song, and it's a cool video. And they play it all day, every day. Plus, you hear it on the radio all the time. And the rest of the songs, gosh, they were played a lot on classic rock radio and on pop radio around 84, 85, while this album was on the charts. And it gave us a foothold. It gave us a place to start from, to then go back and listen to all of Yes's classic albums, get to know the band, get to know their style. And as guys who listen to a lot of progressive rock these days, We're sure glad we did. Maybe the album didn't feature Steve Howe. Maybe it didn't feature your favorite keyboard player, Rick Wakeman, or even Jeff Downs. Tony Kay does a great job. Some people say once Bill Bruford left the band, it was never the same. And you're welcome to your opinion on that. But yes, really hit the big time with this one. Thanks in great part to Trevor Rabin, the South African with a great voice, fine guitar player, and a heck of a songwriter who's now composed the music for I don't know how many movies and helped all of them get into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And even if the current incarnation of Yes doesn't want to play anything from this album, that's okay. I would still support Yes. If they come near me within a reasonable distance, I would absolutely see them on their current tour. We'll support them until there is no more Yes. But how do you feel about it? I mean, are you a classic Yes head and this was too big of a pop departure? Is this where you came in on Yes with us? And then you find some of their older proggy stuff odd or too much to take on do you celebrate the whole catalog let us know you can email us ugly american werewolf at gmail.com you can tweet or gm us on x formerly known as twitter that's ugly underscore werewolf or at action jacks 72 we're also on instagram and threads and apparently facebook we're on youtube so check us out and please download and subscribe wherever you get your podcast we get a lot of love from good pods lately but apple spotify google Podcasts, it doesn't matter where please download and subscribe and if you're thinking about it guys go ahead and give us a positive review it just helps us find more rock and roll fans like you helps us grow the show bring on more guests, and have a lot more fun. Thanks, as always, to Pantheon Podcast for making us part of the family. And thanks to our sponsor, RareVinyl.com, where if you go and use the code UGLY, you can save 10% off your orders. Lots of Yes stuff, lots of Yes solo albums you can find on there. Great stuff. Go to RareVinyl.com, use the code UGLY, and save 10%. I think we're going to have some more concert reviews for you before the end of the year. I know we're going to have a couple more special guests and we got some albums that will be celebrating some big anniversaries. So you have to download to make sure you don't miss what's coming up next. And until next time, to all of you rock and rollers all around the world, be cool and keep doing what you do to keep rock alive. (laughs) 
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.